I want to invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles right now to John chapter 4. We've got a lengthy passage of Scripture. Um, We're not going to read the whole thing word for word. We're going to kind of break this story down section by section this morning. But we are continuing our sermon series called Encounters. And and through through the Gospels, we see story after story of people that come from all different backgrounds, all different races, all different issues, all different ailments that encounter Jesus, and they are different because they came face-to-face with the Christ. And, you know, if you think about many of these encounters that we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks, many of them are not just mere conversations. They're not just mere interactions and meetings. They're actually beautiful collisions, if you will. People that are coming face-to-face with the divine, people that are in their brokenness, encountering a savior who could heal them and change them. And, uh, you know, so they, they become beautiful collisions of humanity and divinity coming together. And, you know, I had a beautiful collision when I was a sophomore in high school. Actually, it wasn't a beautiful collision, but it was very definitely a collision. See, I played high school football up until my senior year. I didn't play my senior year, but the reason is, is because my sophomore year, I was a 15-year-old kid, I was on the football team at Ashland High School, and we were doing a tackling drill called, uh, I don't remember what the name of the drill was, but I had to go up in this tackling drill against a guy, his name was Big Ben Mathis. And Big Ben was a play on words. He was very big and very small at the same time. You see, Big Ben um, was anything but tall. He was five foot three. But he was very big when it comes to girth. He was about 320 pounds. So Big Ben is about this tall. He's about 320 pounds. I'm a 15-year-old kid at the time. I'm six foot one. I'm about 160 pounds. So I'm, I'm taking about almost a foot from him, but I'm, I'm giving over 100 pounds to him, you know, well over 100 pounds to him. And the coach gives the ball to Big Ben and says, Ben, you've got the ball. Chris, your job is to tackle him. And so we're, we're, we're 15 year old guys and, you know, the adrenaline is flowing. You know, the testosterone is going. Our whole team is circled up around us. And I just remember the thoughts that were going through my head. I remember thinking all these years later, oh man, this is really going to hurt. <laughs> and it was my job to take him down. And, and, and it was his job to run over me. And our teammates are all standing in the circle and they want to be impressed. And so the last thing I wanted to do was come across timid or scared. I certainly didn't want to back down from a challenge like I was up for it. And so the coach stands us about 10 yards apart and he says, Ben, here's the ball. You run through Chris. Your job is to not get tackled. Chris, you're on the other side of this circle. Your job is to do everything that you can to keep him from getting past you. And so Ben gets the ball and he is a wrecking ball, man. And he had an angry streak. He was a nice guy, but on the football field, man, there was a flip that just switched and he was mean as you can imagine. And I'm like, oh, this is going to hurt. This is not going to end well. And let me just tell you, it did hurt. Um, (laughs) when, When he took that ball and he ran at me, we came into this massive head-on collision. And it did hurt, but I also took him down 
Or better yet, he kind of took me down. I just kind of got in his way, and he just runs through me, and he, can, he just kind of happens to trip over me in the process. But here's the thing that I, here's the reason that I tell you that, is because in the process of that, we hit with such force, we collided with such force that he dislocated my shoulder. In that moment, I hit the ground and I was writhing in pain. It wasn't like a simple separation. Like it was out. Like I felt my arm bone like popping up out of my shoulder in places that it's not supposed to pop out. And I was in extreme pain and it was, it was a collision, but it was anything but beautiful. And over the course of years, I've learned to live with this injury that's been ongoing, and I've felt the consequences of it. I rehabbed my shoulder for probably six months. I did everything that the doctors and the physical therapists told me to do because I wanted to play football my junior and senior year, but I'm telling you, I was never the same. Once you dislocate something like that, the fear every time that you hit someone is, it's going to come out again. And guess what? It did come out again. And again, and again, and again, and again. It's come out at least five times, if not six times, since that first injury. And let me tell you, this collision, what it's done in my life, I have dislocated my shoulder five or six times, like I said. One time was when I was playing church softball. I'm running the base paths, and I'm rounding second base, and I'm flinging my shoulder, my arm, and it dislocates in the middle of the base path. I drop like a, like a sack of potatoes. I was in pain. Another time, I took a group of teenagers on a, on a winter retreat, and I took them skiing, and we had the most massive amount of snowfall over the course of that weekend that you could possibly imagine. And so it was like, it was like skiing on clouds. And so we were hitting every jump that you could possibly imagine. And uh, one jump I hit didn't have quite the snow base on the other end that the other jumps did. And of course I crashed and my shoulder dislocated. But the worst one I'll tell you as a result of that ugly collision when I was 15 years old was when Becky and I were first married, we had been married for maybe six months and we're sleeping. I'm in the dead of sleep. It's the dead of night. And I'm laying on my stomach with my, my arms above my head and my shoulder dislocates in the middle of my sleep. And I woke up screaming. You want to talk about a rude wake-up call. That was it. And my wife didn't know what to do. It was a really scary moment. I dislocated it, and luckily I got it back in. But I say all of that because I know a thing or two about collisions, and many of you do as well. Mine was anything but beautiful in that moment, but it has had lasting effects. It's had lasting consequences in my life. And Jesus has had so many of these beautiful encounters and collisions in scripture with people and it changes them. It profoundly impacts the rest of their life. And this morning, as we look in John chapter four, we're going to, we're going to learn of a Samaritan woman who has an encounter with Jesus. And it's really like the backstory to all of this in John chapter four is the tension between two different people groups, the Jews and the Samaritans. And what we're going to find is through a little bit of history, we're going to see that there are colliding cultures, there's colliding nationalities, there's colliding uh, you know, convictions and religious beliefs coming together. But it's one of the most beautiful encounters in all the Gospels. And it starts in John chapter 4, verse 1. Now, we're not going to start there this morning, but really all this is is a follow-up to John chapter 3, Okay. Jesus is in the area of Jerusalem. He's in the region of Judea. 
and he's celebrating Passover there, and he encounters a man named Nicodemus. If you remember from last week, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a teacher, a ruler of the Jews. He was an extremely powerful man, an influential man. He was society's elite, if you will. And, and Jesus encountered him in John chapter 3. Well, Jesus starts to grow in popularity, starts to grow in fame. He needs to leave the area of Judea, and he wants to go to the area of Galilee, which is one of the most northern parts of Israel. But as he is leaving, he he realizes he's got to go through an area, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But the the reason I share a little bit about Nicodemus is because he he was society's elite. He was powerful. He was influential. He was spiritual. He was everything that all the other Jews would look up to and say, that's what I would love to be. And Jesus said, you must be born again. As good as you are, as religious as you are, as much scripture as you know, as all of of all the good things that you have done, it's still not enough. You must be born again. And then Jesus is going to encounter another woman in John chapter four, who is very much not Jewish. She's actually born on the wrong side of the tracks, if you will. She's from the wrong side of the border, and she is, she's got a long track record with men, and it's messy, and it is ugly. And what this tells me is the, the difference between John chapter 3 and John chapter 4 is Jesus is no respecter of persons. He ministers to the elite. He ministers to the outcast. And there's one thing that these two individuals have in common, Nicodemus and the woman at the well in Samaria, is that they are both spiritually unwell. They're both spiritually broken. And so the background of this passage is that there's a, there's a picture of a centuries-old conflict between these two people groups. And the contempt that's between the Jews and the Samaritans, it ran really deep. And it had serious like political and uh, religious implications. And there was a lot of tension between these two people groups. But that doesn't stop Jesus from going to this woman in Samaria. You think about that. Have you ever stopped to think about the fact that Jesus went out of his way to find you? Think about the fact that Jesus came after you. He was on a rescue mission. And more than you going looking for him, it was him coming to find and to rescue you. And that's what we're going to see here with the woman in Samaria, the woman at the well. He was trying to find her. He was trying to get to her because he had a mission and he needed to encounter her in order to change her life. And so what can we learn from this beautiful collision story, this beautiful encounter. If you turn in your notes and um, in your program, we're going to have some fill in the blanks there. There should be a pen in the pew back in front of you. If you don't have your own, you can fill in some blanks and, and take some notes. But I'm praying this morning that this passage of scripture and what God has to show us this morning will impact you and show you what it looks like when people have a beautiful encounter with the living Christ. And the first, the, the first observation that I want to I kind of draw from this passage of Scripture is that the world takes the easy path, but Jesus takes the necessary path. The world loves to take the easy path, but Jesus takes the necessary. Let's start in verse 3 of John chapter 4. It says this, And Jesus, he left Judea, and he departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Joseph's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, 
was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Okay, so here's Jesus. He's just left Jerusalem. Now understand, his travelings from Jerusalem up to Capernaum, where he is headed in the region of Galilee, is about a 90-mile, maybe an 80 to 90-mile trek. This is no small journey. This is no small hike. This is a days-long, I I guess, walk, if you will, um, through these different cities and these different areas. And so this was a very big deal. This was a very big movement and a very big moment for Jesus and his followers. And so for him to get from Judea up to Galilee, understand if you you know anything about Israel, Samaria is smack dab in the middle of these two regions. And because of the hatred that was between these two different people groups, the Jews would oftentimes completely go around the region of Samaria so they didn't have to step foot in that region because they hated each other. But the Bible says in verse 3 that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Now, no self-respecting Jew would have ever said that they needed to go through this region, that they needed to step foot in this area. It would be like, it would be like today. Let's say you're from Ohio, right? And you're an Ohio State Buckeyes fan. And you need to get to Canada. Well, where do you need to go through if you're going to directly, if you're going to take the most direct route, not through Lake Erie, you're going to take the most direct route, guess where you have to go? You have to go through Michigan. But you don't want to go through the land up north. You want to go around it because you do not like Michigan Wolverines. And so what do you do? You drive all the way around. You go a day's journey out of the way to get to Canada just so you don't have to go through Michigan. Anybody ever thought about doing that? Maybe you've thought about it. You've probably not done it, but it sounds a little bit ridiculous, but this is exactly what the Jews would do. They had so much hatred and contempt for the Samaritans that they would go around. Now, we all know this, right? Like, If you've been in church any amount of time, you understand that there's a tension between the Jews and the Samaritans, but maybe you don't know why. So the question is, where does this tension come from? Where does it start? I want to take you back 700 years. The nation of Israel is broken into two different kingdoms. The, the kingdom of Judea, which was two tribes, and it had Jerusalem and the, and the temple of, of uh, Solomon's temple in it, right? Like there were two southern um, tribes of Israel that made up Judea, or uh, yeah, Judea, Judah, sorry, I'm getting my regions and my nations mixed up. They, they, they made up the, the, the southern country of Judah, and then there was the northern kingdom um, that made up, uh, was made up of the other ten tribes of, um, of Israel. And so they were broken into two different countries basically at this time. The Assyrians in around 700 BC come in and they, they lay assault into the northern kingdom of Israel, and they take over the northern kingdom. And so what they do is they deport all of the influential people out of Israel, all the spiritual leaders, all the wealthy people, all the government leaders, all these people that make decisions that carry influence, they deport them out and they bring in Assyrians to settle into the land with the people of Israel that are left there. So over the course of time, these Assyrians begin to intermarry with the people that are left behind that are Jewish. Well, these people intermarry, then they have children. And these kids are basically a mixed breed of people. And they start to adopt different 
uh, beliefs, different uh, practices, different um, habits, all of these different things, and their religion starts to look very tainted. They are no longer pure Jews because they are half Assyrian, half Jewish, and the, uh, the, the, the Jews couldn't stand these people. And so what this really was by the Assyrians is as they would conquer these nations, they would do this in, intentionally to basically wipe out a culture. They were kind of whitewashing Judaism out of northern Israel. And so these people had children, and they were called Samaritans, and they, and they settled in the area of Samaria, and they were half-breeds. And they took on a very um, diluted form of, uh, of worship of God. You see, they had some very, um, I, I guess, um, some very different beliefs. They were a mixed religion holding on to certain Jewish customs. They were ignoring others. For, so, so just to give you an idea... Like they believed in the Bible, they believed in the God of the Bible, but they only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. They avoided and they denied that um, the prophets were scripture. They denied and avoided um, the, the writings of, of wisdom and of prophecy. They, de- they denied the history, uh, the books of history. So they kind of just like claimed their own parts of the Bible. Um, beyond that, they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. They found their, they, they, they had their own holy mountain and they built a temple on top of it because they couldn't worship in the temple of Jerusalem. So they would worship at their own temple. Beyond that, they took some of the stories from the Pentateuch and they retaught them as if they happened on their holy mountain. Okay. So they, they basically believe that the Garden of Eden was on Mount Gerizim at one point. They also believe that Noah's Ark rested at the end of the flood on Mount Gerizim, their holy mountain in the north. And they also taught and believed that Abraham offered his son Isaac as a sacrifice on that same mountain. And what we know from history, what we know from God's word is that none of those things are true. They were basically changing the narrative to fit their needs and to fit their agendas. And so the the Israelites, the Jews, they detested this. And so the easy path for Jesus, right? The easy path for Jesus was actually to just circumvent all of Samaria and avoid it altogether, to just go around it, add a day's uh, worth of journey to your, to your itinerary and just go around it. But Jesus doesn't take the easy path, does he? Jesus takes the necessary path. And so he decides to go through Samaria. He finds himself in a city or a town called Sychar. And he's, th- he's tired. And he's thirsty, so he stops at a well to take a rest and to, to get a drink. And there he encounters a woman from Samaria. And it's around the noon hour. And so I want you to understand that that's significant because it was very customary for women to draw water from the well. The men typically did not go to the well. The women would go in groups, and they would go either in early morning or at dusk. They would go in the cool of the day because it was just much easier of a task. But they would go in groups because it was safer that way, and also it was a very communal, it was a very communal thing for them to do. And so it was very unusual for a woman of Samaria to be at this well at midday. So it kind of tells you what kind of a woman this lady was. And it tells you what her reputation was because everybody in this small town knew her dirty laundry. It had been aired out. Her reputation was tainted. She knew what everyone thought of her. And she was shunned by the others, but Jesus did not shun her. He knew why she was there at the well. He knew why he was there at the well. And her life would be changed by Jesus Christ and his encounter with her because he took the necessary path 
not the easy path. Folks, aren't you glad that Jesus took the necessary path for us? Aren't you glad that he didn't take the easy path? The easy path would have been to avoid the cross. But instead, Jesus took that hard path to Mount Calvary in order to pay the price for our sins that we could never pay. And because of it, he changed our lives. Because of it, he led us to redemption. Because Jesus takes the necessary path, not the easy path. Number two, the second observation that I've got for you this morning is that the world has an insatiable thirst. The world has an insatiable thirst, but Jesus quenches our deepest cravings. So we're going to look further on into the story in verse 7. And it leads us to this point. It says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where are you going to get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us all the well. He gave us the well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. And so this is where the narrative begins, and it begins with something highly unlikely that we referred to briefly earlier. Jesus was speaking to a woman. Now understand this, no self-respecting Jew, especially not a rabbi, would speak to a woman in public, okay? It just wasn't customary for them to do this. So Jesus is speaking to a woman, but not only is he speaking to a woman, he's speaking to a Samaritan woman. And even worse than that, Not only is he speaking to a Samaritan woman, he's speaking to a Samaritan woman who has a history, who is an outcast by her own people. And so this entire encounter that Jesus has is extremely scandalous. But Jesus is not motivated by appearances. Jesus is not worried about the social protocols. He's not worried about what people think. And so he sits down and he asks this woman for a drink from her vessel which would have been unthinkable. To drink out of the same cup, to drink out of the same jar as a Samaritan would have been absolutely unheard of. And so she recognizes, man, this is a weird encounter. Like, I don't understand what's really happening here. Why is this man talking to me? She recognizes that something is off here and something is different. So she gets a little snarky with Jesus because she doesn't know him to be the savior. She doesn't know him to be Messiah or to be the Christ. She just knows that he's a Jew. And what does she expect from a Jew? She expects judgment. She expects condemnation. She expects a conflict. And so she kind of starts that conflict saying, well, it's going to happen. So she starts to get snarky with Jesus. Like, where are you going to get this water? You don't have anything to draw from. Like, you're not even prepared for this. And so she starts escalating the conversation. Why are you talking to me? She's like, I know. I know what your people think of us. I know the differences between our cultures. So she starts escalating the confrontation, but Jesus does not engage. Jesus isn't interested in a fight. He just wants to reveal the truth of who he is. He wants to offer her something that she has been looking for her entire life. 
And he says to her, man, if, woman, if you knew who I was, you would be asking me for a drink. I'd give you living water. Well, now she's intrigued when Jesus starts talking about this, this living water because she's tired of the daily, the daily trips to the well. She's tired of the judgment. She's tired of being an outsider. She's tired of traveling to that well, having to draw water because it's, an, it's a reminder every day that she's an outcast. Every day it's a reminder to her that her life has been one big failure and everything that's wrong with her life. And so she says to Jesus, where can I get this water? So this is kind of the summation of her life and the summation of many people's lives that are looking for satisfaction. You know, the old Rolling Stones song, I can't get no satisfaction. This is where she's at in this moment. She's looking for it. So she's like, Jesus, how can I be satisfied? How can you quench this thirst? Because she had a thirst in her life that no man and no bed could quench. She wanted something more than what she, she's already had and what she's already experienced. You know, we've all been at that place in our lives. Maybe it's not through sexual relations. Maybe it's not through multiple marriages. But we've all been at that place in our lives where we're looking for satisfaction. We're searching for something to fulfill us. You know, as I was researching this sermon this week, I came across a, a statistic that said 100 years ago, the average American had 50 desires. Just 50. That sounds like a lot, but it's really not that many. 50 desires 100 years ago. People lived fairly simple lives. Well, these days, 100 years later, the average American has 500 desires. Folks, we have more than we've ever had, and we're as empty as we've ever been. And all we do is keep accumulating. All we do is continue chasing after that next high, that next thing, that next experience, that next dollar. We long for all the things that we think will make us happy. If I just got to go to this place, if I just had this much money, if I could just experience this thing, if I only had this item, man, then I would be satisfied. Then I would be happy. Then I would be fulfilled. And we want, and we want, and we want, and we drink from these wells, but they only leave us dissatisfied. You know, King Solomon, he learned this lesson the hard way. Back in the book of Ecclesiastes, he wrote this in chapter 2, Verses 9 through 11, Solomon, who was the wealthiest man in history, had all of this wisdom, had all of these women, had all of these opportunities in front of him. He had everything that money could buy in his day. He said this in verse 9, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and all the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Solomon realized that all of his toil, all of his earnings, all of his work, all of his desperate um, desires for fulfillment, all of them were vanity and all of them left him empty. He imbibed in every possible pleasure you can imagine. And it still didn't satisfy. Folks, rarely do we gain the whole world and at the end find that uh, 
at the end of that rainbow, when we have found that pot of gold, rarely does it satisfy us. You know, we drink from the wells of pleasure and riches and adventure and accumulation and things. And all it does is leave us more and more thirsty because we're drinking from the wrong wells. It's like drinking from salt water, right? You ever been to the ocean and, you know, accidentally drank salt water? All it does is leave you more parched. It leaves you more thirsty. It never satisfied. So the question I have to ask you this morning is what wells are you drinking from? What are you turning to thinking that this will quench my thirst, that this will, this will ease my cravings and my hunger, this will satisfy me, only to find that it keeps leaving you empty? This woman was drinking from well after well after well, and all they did was leave her parched. And Jesus came to offer her a living water where she would never be thirsty again. You've probably heard of the 17th century um, French physicist and philosopher, um, Blaise Pascal, he once said this. He said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the creator made known through Jesus Christ. There is a hole in each and every one of us, and we all feel it. We all recognize it. We, we search for all these things to try to fill it and to, 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 to cover that void in our lives but we're searching in all the wrong places and it can only be satisfied in God through Christ Jesus. Friends, Jesus is the one who offers us the living water that can can quench our deepest cravings of our human heart. Look at verse 15 in John chapter four. It goes on to say this, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. This woman wants this freedom. She wants this, uh, she wants this living water. She wants this redemption. She wants to be made new and she wants to have her thirst quenched. She wants to be freed of the condemnation of her life, which leads to point number three. The world is condemned by their dark past, but Jesus redeems us for a brighter future. Without Christ, we all stand condemned. But Jesus came in order to redeem us, in order to change our history, in order to change our future, in order to redeem us for a better tomorrow. Look at verses 16 through 19. It says this, And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one that you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Like this guy is a stranger. He's a foreigner. He's an outsider. He walks in and he recognizes, he, he, he recognizes this woman and he knows everything about her past. And she's like, this guy's different. I don't know what he is, but he must be some sort of prophet. There's no way he could know her whole entire history. Jesus is about to get to the root of her problems and he, he confronts her present reality, right? Like she's had five husbands, five divorces, and she's living with a man now that is not her husband. She's got quite the reputation. She's tapped into every well you can imagine, hoping for pleasure and hoping for acceptance. And every one of them left her craving more. Folks, some of us were so desperate for acceptance, we will receive it and we will take it from anywhere we can find it. I read a bumper sticker just a couple of weeks ago on a car that a woman was driving, and it was really sad and telling. It said this. The bumper sticker simply said, I'm not loose, I'm just popular. 
And it's kind of it's kind of funny or whatever, but it's really sad at the same time. I'm not loose, I'm just popular. Like I believe that this is where this woman was. Like she was looking for acceptance and popularity. All she wanted was for someone to receive her and for someone to please her and bring that pleasure. And she was drinking from those wells and she was loose and she got looser and looser and it just left her empty. And Jesus walks into the story and he's here to talk about the pain in her life and he cuts right to it. He like opens, he opens her up, he carves her up and says, I know your past. I know what you've done. I know the condemnation that you live with every day. And he tells her, he says, basically it's time to abandon this well. It's time to stop drinking from these waters that you've kept drinking from. I have something to offer you that is different. I have something that will completely satisfy. My well is deep and it will never run dry. She doesn't know what to do with this kind of conviction. So guess what she does? She diverts the whole conversation. Like Jesus is offering her living water. He's offering her salvation and redemption. And look what she says in verse 20. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She's completely diverting the conversation because all of this talk about her sin and her condemnation and her history, like it's heading too close to home. And isn't that what we tend to do? Is instead of confronting the sin in our life, don't we tend to like divert from it? Because it, it hurts a little bit too much. It's a little bit too personal. I don't want to deal with that decision. I don't want to deal with that condemnation. I don't want to deal with that moment in my past. And so we divert away from it. And Jesus is here saying, let's talk about this. But not in order to condemn you more, but in order to bring conviction. Folks, conviction does, or, um, conversion comes from conviction. And conviction comes from condemnation. And Jesus is trying to bring her out of this condemnation to say, you need to be convicted of your sins because I want to convert you. In order to have salvation, we have to go from conviction of our sins to a faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is kind in this moment to this woman. And this kindness is leading her to a repentance. And so she's still wondering, who is Jesus? She's still looking for the Christ. Verse 25 says this. It says, um, Let me get there. It says, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And I love these words. I love that Jesus just like says, this is who I am. He's not playing around any longer. She's been looking for a Messiah. She's been looking for redemption. She's been looking for something that will fulfill And she'd been looking in all the wrong places. And here's Jesus. He says, everything that you've been looking for in life, I'm here to fulfill it. You've been looking for the Messiah. You've been looking for hope. You've been looking for the Christ. I am he. I am here. The kingdom has come. And it's interesting that this is the very first time that Jesus reveals himself publicly that he is the Messiah sent from God. Think about that. Think about the significance of this moment. Jesus makes this declaration publicly to this woman that he had never made before. He said, I'm the Christ. And he makes it to an insignificant woman living in an insignificant town, living an insignificant life. But what's going to happen in her life is going to have a significant impact on those that she encounters moving forward. Her testimony would change the course of history for many people in her city, 
Which leads me to the fourth and final uh, observation. The world is looking for transformation. The world is looking for transformation testimonies. Jesus brings the change that we crave. Look at verse 28, John chapter 4. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and they were coming to him. This woman had just been changed. She had just encountered Christ. She realized that he was the Messiah. He told her everything that she ever did. She had been redeemed. She had drank from this living water. There was a transformation in her life. And I love that Jesus just lets her go. You realize every time, almost every time up until now, when Jesus performed a miracle, when he healed someone, what did he usually do? Whoa, let's keep this under wraps. Don't go telling everybody because my time is not yet come. So keep this quiet, go to the temple, offer yourself up to the priest, but let's not make a big deal out of this because I don't need the masses just yet. And what does Jesus do here? He does something completely different. He just lets her go. And man, does she run. She has found someone and something that has saved her from all of the condemnation of her past. And she goes into the town and she drops everything. Come see a man who has told me everything I ever did. She was completely changed and transformed. And there was a joy in her that was compelling. They were drawn to Jesus. The people of the town were drawn to Jesus, not in spite of her, but because of her. You know, the great evangelist, uh, John Wesley Someone once asked him why so many people came out to hear his sermons when he would preach. And his response went something like this. When you set yourself on fire, people love to come and watch you burn. Man, John Wesley had a fire in his bones and people were drawn to it. They couldn't take their eyes off of it. And this woman, she caught a spark of who Jesus was and it changed her. She couldn't not speak of it. And the people looked at her and saw something different. They saw her burn for Jesus in her life. And they were curious and they were drawn to Jesus because of it. Verse 39 in chapter 4 says this. Many Samaritans went from that town, believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything that I had ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. One woman's testimony, one woman's redemption story transformed a city of people. And for the first time, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, the message of the kingdom spreads beyond the borders of Israel. Friends, I want to let you know as we close out this morning that your story has power. Your testimony can influence other people. Are you living a light that shines before men? Matthew 5, 16 says, Let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Does your light shine before men? When people look at your life, do they see a testimony of transformation? That testimony of transformation is powerful and God can use it. In fact, someone once said, I love this quote, and I'm going to close out with this. Christians are like glow sticks. They can't shine unless they've been broken. Folks, every one of us in this place are a glow stick. We've all been broken. But God can use our brokenness just like he did with the Samaritan woman at the well. He used her brokenness. He redeemed her 
And he used her to reach a city full of people. He can use your brokenness if he can use hers. And your story of redemption might just be the glow in the darkness that others need to point the way to him. So let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father.